When many of us in clinical medicine think back to our own training years, we often recall interacting with master clinicians who were skilled diagnosticians, thoughtful teachers, and role models of a compassionate bedside manner. What lessons do these master clinicians have to teach the rest of us in terms of how they learn, how their minds work, and how they became so good at what they do? I'm Vivek Murthy. Welcome to the Master Clinician Project. What follows is an interview with Dr. Richard Jacobs. Dr. Jacobs is Professor of Medicine Emeritus at the University of California, San Francisco, where he was a practicing infectious disease specialist from 1974 until he retired in 2016. Dr. Jacobs completed his MD and PhD degrees at Washington University in St. Louis from 1968 to 1974, then came to UCSF for both medicine residency and infectious disease fellowship. His encyclopedic knowledge of infectious disease medicine, his incredible teaching abilities, and his compassionate manner with patients and colleagues alike, all contributed to his election to the UCSF Council of Master Clinicians in their inaugural class of 2007. The following interview with Dr. Jacobs took place in 2016 as part of a broader qualitative research project I was conducting then, studying the early careers of master clinicians. We had a wide-ranging conversation where Dr. Jacobs described the earliest parts of his clinical career. He talked about his very first job, his formative learning habits, helpful personality traits, and the importance of seeking out teaching roles. One message that rang out clearly during this interview was the value that Dr. Jacobs found in following up on his patients over time and tracking the outcomes of his prior clinical decisions. Doing this taught him about the natural history of diseases. It improved his skills as a prognosticator and refined his clinical judgment as well. His habit of following up fits perfectly into Anders Ericsson's formulation of purposeful and deliberate practice, which are types of practice that we reviewed in a prior episode, involving the regular, focused practice of tasks beyond one's current performance level. Deliberate and purposeful practice are specifically refined by reflecting on feedback to guide future training efforts. In this interview, Dr. Jacobs describes engaging in exactly this type of practice refinement during his early career. He also shared stories and anecdotes of all types that were candid, gripping, and endearing. I hope you enjoy this interview as much as I did. Okay, let's get started. Dr. Richard Jacobs, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the Master Clinician Project. My understanding is that you completed most of your medical training here at UCSF. Can you tell us a bit more about your training years? So the truth of the matter was, was that when I did my training here, um, uh, and I was a resident, and I was the chief resident out at the VA uh, from 77 to 78, uh, there was not a very strong infectious disease division. In fact, the only two people who did infectious diseases in this entire hospital was uh, a person who ran the emergency room halftime and did infectious diseases halftime. And the other person was uh, ran the microbiology laboratory uh, and was not very interested in clinical medicine whatsoever. So, so that was it. So the question was, where did I do my infectious disease training. I made it up here. Um, in 1978, I got um, the person who did the halftime 
infectious uh, emergency room and infectious diseases and uh, to mentor me. Uh, and in my second year, they then had a new director of microbiology who was a little bit more clinically interested. So I did some research with him, some very basic kind of uh, infectious disease research uh, and more clinical stuff my second year. And that was my training, 78 to 1980. Hmm. And I kind of made it up and did it on my own. Well, it, it sounds like a lot of your learning was self-directed and that you were really forging your own path in a way. When you finished your training after fellowship was done, uh, tell us about your first faculty position. What was that like? So the way the way it worked um, was um, I, I actually went into private practice here in the hospital. Um, this, may, this may sound <laughs> a little strange to you, but, but uh, in those days, uh, the... The building, the the U building here, the old building is being retrofitted right now, was actually a private hospital. So the the, the background of this is is that um, a, a person who was a year ahead of me in training went to the NIH, got trained in infectious diseases, came back here and opened up a private practice in infectious diseases. This guy's personality, Vince Pons, uh, was uh, unbelievable. He, you would sit down with him for five minutes, and after five minutes, you'd feel like he was your best friend for life. So he got very, very busy in a very short period of time. And when I finished my made-up fellowship in infectious diseases, he said, I need help. Will you join me in private practice? So we were in private practice uh, over at the university building uh, on the first floor where there are a bunch of private practice offices. Uh, and um, we were asked to see infectious disease patients. Theoretically, it was only supposed to be the private patients that all the staff had admitted to the private hospital. But because of the service that we gave and because of our personality skills, there, we saw, I would say, 80% of all of the infectious diseases that was seen. So the, the, the actual training infectious disease service that was run by these other two people, we saw most of the, the patients because the, the, serv- the, the attendings on the surgical service wanted Vince and me to see the patient. What I'm hearing is that your clinical role was quite busy and that you saw a lot of patients. Tell us about how your time was divided in your first faculty position, say between clinical care, research, teaching, and administrative roles. Um, it was it was much heavier on taking care of patients. It was almost exclusively patient care. And the teaching that we did was when we would attend on the hospital side, you know, on the teaching side, uh, and the residents would would you know, do what they do now. They go and they work out patients. And, but, but we didn't do that probably, I don't know, maybe four months out of the year, or something like that, six months. It, it was probably a considerable amount of time that we did it. But, but it was, there, there was very little administrative stuff that went on. It was almost all patient care. It, it was 
believe it, it, it was great. It was great. It was a lot, it was a lot of fun. <laughs> you know, it sure does sound like there was quite a bit of clinical work to go around for just the two of you on the consult service. But it's amazing to hear that despite the rigorous schedule, you still found that work to be fun. Um, I want to shift gears slightly and get right to the heart of what this interview is about, which is trying to figure out whether you had any clinical habits, learning behaviors, attitudes, or practices during your early career, which you felt were formative for you and perhaps distinguished you from your peers. I would say um, it was a combination of two kind of social things that were going on. One was I was incredibly insecure about my medical ability. And I'll explain that in a second. And the other trait is that I'm a little bit OCD. <laughs> and I am, and, and I'm very competitive. I want, I want to do a good job. So the insecurity uh, was that as part of this MD-PhD program, what you did was you did your first two years in medical school, which was totally different then than it is now. There's no clinical interaction whatsoever. It's all basic science, all laboratory stuff, all physiology, you know, all, all that kind of stuff. No, no uh, clinical experience whatsoever. Then you go into the lab for three years, and then you come out of the lab for a year, but you have to fulfill the requirements of medical school. So I had to do surgery, OBGYN, psychiatry, and I had a total of, I would say, six weeks or 10 weeks of medicine. Mm. Uh, and then I was a house officer here at UCSF, and the quality of the house officers was no different then than it is now. It was very competitive, very high quality. Uh, so I was like on the realm of experience way down here. And everybody else was way up there. And it was very, very intimidating, to say the least. Uh, and um, so I, I was incredibly insecure uh, about it, but also... Uh, was uh, had built into me being very competitive and always wanting to do a good job. So I would just grind it out. These personality traits you mentioned, um, what I think can be summarized as humility and competitiveness, do you think they influenced any specific learning habits or clinical behaviors? I, I would say that I spent a lot of time reading and trying to find people that I could ask questions to. Uh, and I got, um, my recollection of the responses were, you know, nobody knows the answer to that. You know, don't, don't think that you need to know that, you're, that there's something wrong with you for not knowing the answer to that. Uh, there, there was some positive reinforcement, but I felt, you know, I felt um, just very insecure and that I just had to work as hard as I possibly could. Mm -hmm. And I did that by kind of reading and talking to people and observing and watching other people. I also wanted to shift gears slightly and ask you about how you went about 
acquiring clinical knowledge during your early career? How often would you say that you read and, and what did you read? The, the resources were not huge. You, you know, you had, you had two choices. You had a textbook of medicine or you had journal articles. That was it. Uh, and there, you know, the journals weren't on the, you know, the internet. You had to go over to the library or you, you know, you got some journals, but most of the time you had to go to the library, uh, to, to look things up. And which books and, and which journals in particular? I, I would say that it was, um, standard textbook of medicine, uh, Harrison's textbook of medicine. Um, uh, let's see, what was the other one? It was Wintrobe, I guess, or Weintrobe. There's another, there were two textbooks. Um, but I would use one of the standard textbooks, uh, and, uh, the, the journals, uh, that would be more varied because it would be whatever the library had to, had to offer and wherever I had to go to read. And when you say your reading efforts were daily, weekly, did you, did you set time aside to, to kind of block off to read or did you read incidentally? It it was, it was, um, what... Uh, you know, the first year, whatever I could tolerate, uh, because it was like every third night, um, and it, it catches up to you after a while. Um, so it was it was spotty, but when the opportunity was there, I I, I would do it. And what would you read about? Would you use patient experiences to kind of uh, and patient cases to prime your reading, or yes. would you try to read yeah. more generally? No, it was it was definitely patient directed. So I'm hearing that you had a regular reading program that was focused around the patients you were seeing in practice. This is a consistent theme that we've heard in some of our other interviews. Another theme that we've heard about is the value of having role models. Did you ever interact with role models during your early career, people you thought of as masterful clinicians? I would say um, kind of in a general sort of way, um, there was... One attending at um, the VA, who uh, you wouldn't know, um, he since died. He was a cardiologist. His name was Merv Goldman, um, and he had an incredible knack of taking whatever patient it was, however complicated it was. And when he would write his attending note in the chart, it would be about this long, and it would capture every single aspect of what was important. And that was um, that that was pretty impressive to me. That that was you know being able to distill a very complicated situation down to its essence and be able to express it in a couple of sentences is, was a goal that, that I would have loved to achieve. I would say that the other role model was um, probably Larry. He he's a few years older than I am. Oh, Jeremy. Yeah, yeah. So he's a few years older than I am, uh, and was the assistant chief of medicine when I was the chief resident. And as you know, he has an incredible uh, breadth and depth of of medicine. 
So to summarize, it sounds like two examples of approaches or skills that you learned from master clinician role models were one, parsimony in presenting and processing clinical information in terms of boiling down topics to their essence. And two, that it's both possible and aspirational um, to have a breadth and depth of clinical knowledge. Do you have any other examples of skills or approaches or attitudes that you took away from the role models you encountered early in your career? Um, two things. One is presentation. I am a stickler for a really good presentation. And the other thing is, is um, being um, compulsive uh, in the in this in this sense, in the sense that, as you know, we're surrounded by very smart people all of the time, and I think that I came to learn uh, very early that smart is a dime a dozen around here. Everybody's smart. But in, in, and the corollary to that is you do not have to be a genius to be a good doctor, but you do have to be careful and you have to follow up and you have to make sure that things don't slip through your fingers. And so, I, you know, those, those are the two. I, I think that that's probably the most important thing is, is that you know, you, you don't have to be a genius to do this. And there are lots of things that, you know, that, that I don't know or that I'm not interested in and I have no compunction about asking somebody who knows more about it. But um, uh, to, to follow up on things um, is, is incredibly important. I want to ask you about your teaching efforts during your early career. Did you make an effort to teach trainees when you started as faculty? Well, you, you have to understand that um, the, the teaching is something that has uh, evolved over the last 35 years. So in the early phases, uh, you were really imparting knowledge um, that couldn't be accessed very easily. Um, it could be, it could be accessed, but I, I mean, you you were actually teaching about you know pathophysiology of the disease and the organisms and what they what they do and all that kind of stuff. The way that has evolved over the years is is that when I go down to make rounds with the fellows now. They know, I mean, they, they've been, you know, on PubMed, they've been on UpToDate, they've read all of this stuff. They know all, all of that as, as baseline information. So the, the teaching has shifted. Uh, I still have some things to offer in that realm, um, but the teaching has, has uh, I would say, definitely shifted to uh, clinical judgment and experience. Do you feel that seeking out teaching opportunities or making teaching a regular practice during your early career affected your clinical development in any way? Oh, no question about it. I, I would say that the, the single best way to learn 
uh, about a given disease or area is to give a talk about it. You know, if you have to give a lecture on something, um, you, you know it, you know, forwards and backwards. And uh, teaching in an academic way where you're sitting down and you're kind of talking to somebody and trying to teach them the basics of a disease is, you know, several notches below an expansive review of the literature, but it's the same thing. So you, you definitely learn by sitting down and talking to somebody and you learn what you know and what you don't know. Because questions will be asked, and they'll say, "You know, I don't know the answer to that." We'll we'll look it up. We'll see. Uh, so so yeah, the answer is a- absolutely. If you sit down and talk to somebody about a patient with a disease, you are going to more often than not solidify that in your mind and pick up things that you hadn't thought about by the questions that that are that are asked. I mean, I gave you know lectures. Uh, I'll, I'll remember that um, there used to be a an infectious disease uh, ski course here um, that was started um, by somebody down in San Francisco General before all the programs were combined. And at the time, out, it was the single largest, believe it or not, infectious disease meeting outside of the National Infectious Disease Meeting. So in, in uh, 1978, I, I, the guy down in San Francisco General said, I want you to give a lecture at this course on uh, infectious complications of animal and human bites. And it was in, I don't know, it was in Park City or Snowmass or someplace. Actually, it was Sun Valley is where it was. And I haven't given that lecture very often, but I remember everything there is to know about animal and human bites and the complications of animal and human bites. I mean, you just learn so much about it by having to formally prepare it. You know, you said something that I think will stick in my mind for a long time, and I'll paraphrase it here, hopefully accurately. I think you said, the single best way to learn about a given disease is to give a talk about it. That's an amazing insight um, and one I'm not soon to forget. I, I want to ask about a slightly different topic which pertains to tracking patient outcomes over time. During your early career, did you ever try to track patients over time to follow up on their clinical outcomes to find out what had happened to them after they'd left your care? Um. Well, the being uh, doing the follow-up uh, kind of falls into two separate categories. So one category uh, is strictly on the patient care side of things that, uh, you know, you want to know what a lab result is that you ordered, and you don't want to forget that you ordered it because it can be if it's important enough to order, you better see the result. So from that standpoint, I you know I was very dogged about that, but there, but then there's the other aspect of of kind of remembering patients and remembering what they had. I would you know write their names down and I would make sure that I followed up uh, to see what happened. Sometimes it were it was 
you know, were patients that I did follow serially. Although in, in infectious diseases, you don't have any real, there are very few patients that I had long-term relationships with. They were usually kind of quick consults, particularly in the outpatient setting, um, you know, quick, quick consults and, and you're done. But I would, you know, I would, if I didn't, wasn't sure what was going on, I wasn't satisfied with the answer, I would write it down and I would follow it up. Or if they were just really interesting uh, patients that, that I had, that I wanted to kind of remember, um, I, I would write it down and write down their diagnosis and their medical record number, just so I would have it if I ever wanted to look it up again. What do you think was the benefit of following up on patients over time? And what do you think would have been lost had you not done so? Well, I think it, it definitely um, adds to your overall experience uh, and uh, your, and, and it helps with clinical judgment as well. And it, it just helps general knowledge as well by, by following up and seeing what happens. Um, and it gives you a sense of, uh, you know, a lot of times it gives you the sense of natural history of disease um, by being able to follow up and see what happens long term to, to these people. Um, and, and by doing that, um, it also uh, gives you a sense of the presence. You know, if I follow up on somebody who had, uh, uh, you know, coxy meningitis and, you know, 10 years later they're still kind of functional out there, but on suppressive medication. I think it helps you when you see somebody who is, um, uh, where you make that diagnosis, you, you don't necessarily, you know, panic and say, we gotta, we gotta be so aggressive about this right this very minute. And, and it gives you a sense of what, you know, what the long-term plan is and that, you know, you, you can, take your time and wait for a response. And, you know, you, you don't have to go hog wild on, on initial therapy and things like that. So it just, it just adds the whole gestalt of, of how you see the patient, how you deal with the patient, what you can tell the patient the, from your own experience with the long-term course is likely to be. So what I'm hearing is that tracking patients over time helped you learn about the natural history of diseases and to improve your skills as a prognosticator, uh, to, to be able to better counsel patients and other physicians based on your fund of experiences with patients longitudinally. Um, is there anything else that you think you learned from following patients over time and tracking both their outcomes and the consequences of your clinical decisions? You know, I'll give you an example of one that is terrible. And I'll give you an example of one that I absolutely love. Um, so I'll start with the terrible one. So I had um, a patient in clinic, relatively young guy, who had uh, Wegner's, not Wegner's anymore, but whatever it was, and, and whatever it is now, but was on um, uh, steroids, and he developed uh, an aspergillus infection of his lungs. And uh, there was not a whole lot available back then to treat aspergillus. You had either amphotericin B, uh, which people couldn't tolerate for too long, not very conducive for an outpatient setting, or you had voriconazole, 
so um, he was on voriconazole for a long period of time, and he started uh, to uh, develop skin lesions. Uh, I had no idea what it was, but I, you know, sent him to the dermatologist, and I don't think the dermatologist knew either. Uh, and he ended up dying of, of uh, cutaneous malignancies that he that he had. And since that time, it's you know, it's come out that voriconazole is cancer-inducing for the skin, uh, and um, and then there are other uh, examples of um, long-term, you know, relationships with patients that have been pretty satisfying. I mean, uh, you know, the two that come to mind. Um, there's uh, a woman who uh, also had. Um, was on steroids for her underlying disease and developed uh, very, very bad mycobacterial disease, mycobacterium. Um, uh, uh, it wasn't a rapid grower, it was uh, MAC. She had disseminated MAC. And, um, you know, I worked like a dog with her. Uh, she had it in her wrists and her arms and her, she had it every place. And, uh, you know, I, I didn't, at the time, I didn't have that much experience with it. And I, I just worked like crazy with her, with uh, National Jewish Hospital, consulting with them, talking to them all the time, uh, getting investigational drugs. And she's still kicking around in the retirement. She's doing great. Um and it, it uh, you know, that, that kind of thing um, is helpful in the sense that it took a very long time for her to get her disease under control. And we see this, I mean, we have a patient on our service now who has uh, a rapidly growing mycobacterial infection with repeatedly positive blood cultures over the last four or five months. And, and you know, you do everything that you possibly can, but you also have a sense that it's not the end, you know, that with continued therapy, it's possible to get this under control and to have it simmer down. And, you know, this 42-year-old may go on to live another 20 years with, with chronic therapy. So I, I, it, it, it's those kinds of things that, that are helpful, I think. And uh, although anecdotal uh, when it comes to personal experience with patients, I think sometimes anecdotes are separately did you ever make any efforts during your early career to improve your skills with the physical exam or with history taking yes i would say that the answer to that is yes um not not so much um well not so much esoteric kinds of exam skills but i mean basic exam skills i, I do think are very important um did I, did I do anything to hone them, you know, other than to be, you know, attentive to the fact that they're important and to think about uh, doing focused exams and, and where, where to look. And the history um, uh, is, you know, always something that is extraordinarily important. And, and the one story I didn't tell you, uh, which I should probably tell you, is that I, I love telling this story. Um, uh, it was uh, a, a gentleman who was referred to me in the outpatient setting, and he had developed a fever of unknown origin. 
and had um, gone to a bunch of docks in Marin County. And finally, uh, he ended up sitting across from me in my room in, in the ID clinic when, when I was the only person in the ID clinic. Uh, and I, I asked him, I said, well, you know, what, you know, what do you do? And he told me what he does. And uh, I said, you know, do you have, you know, do you have any animals around? He said, well, I said, let me tell you about my business. He said, you know, that, um, that we like nothing green there. Uh, but we, uh, everything has to be disposed of, and um, we don't have any green whatsoever on our property. And I said, well, how do you do that? He said, well, I, we, I, I have a herd of goats. <laughs> and I said, I said, oh, and I said, that's interesting. I said, do you ever have any contact with the goats? He said, oh, he said, yeah. He said, you know, I, I like the goats. He said, you know, just, you know, not too long ago, uh, one of the, uh, one of the goats had a baby and she died and couldn't take care of him. And I would go out every day and feed the goat milk every day. So he ended up having Q fever endocarditis. And the only reason why, um, nobody had made the diagnosis in the five months before that was because nobody took a history. Uh, and it's a, it's a wonderful example of, you know, if you ask the right questions, you get the, the, you know, the, the answers. And, uh, you know, I mean, that's a situation that, um, that I feel like I saved his life. Um, and uh, it was a long relationship with him, a very long relationship. That's such an amazing story. I, I think it goes to show that tracking patients over time doesn't just have the benefit of improving one's clinical and diagnostic and prognostic skills, but it also allows you to, you know, form that human connection with a patient and, and appreciate the humanistic side of what we do even more. So thank you for sharing that. And Dr. Jacobs, I also wanted to say thank you for your time today. We've covered a lot of ground. You told us about your first job, clinical volume, formative personality traits, the value of mentors and following patients over time, as well as the importance of teaching. We even got a story about goats, which was pretty awesome. So thank you again for sitting down with us. And I, I'm confident that our viewers will appreciate uh, your history and uh, advice as much as I did. So thank you. Well, I, I hope I hope something comes of this. I hope it's worthwhile. We'll conclude this episode with a reading of one of my favorite quotes from Mahatma Gandhi, the lawyer and political activist who became a leader of India's campaign for independence. He once said, Live as if you were to die tomorrow. Learn as if you were to live forever. In my view, we can extrapolate two learnings from this quote. From the first part, the importance of mindfulness and presence in life generally, but also in our clinical work during each and every patient encounter. Being present and attentive with patients doesn't just enable us to pick up on more subtle clinical data. It also shows our patients that we care about them in the clearest and most convincing way. So before I enter any patient's room, I use a technique that I learned from a palliative care physician during residency. For a brief moment, just outside the patient's door, I stop, close my eyes, clear my mind with one deep breath, and use that moment to let go of any wandering thoughts about competing tasks. Just like my palliative care attending promised, it helps me to relax, focus, and give each patient my undivided attention. 
The second part of the quote, learn as if you were to live forever, can be viewed in medicine as a recognition that our job isn't only a job, but a practice. That clinician isn't just a title, but a contract, a commitment to lifelong learning. Certainly, residency and fellowship are these high-volume practice environments that take us outside of our comfort zones with built-in feedback loops and supervision from experts. So after those years of rigorous training are complete, surely we must be ready, full-fledged practitioners of medicine or surgery. But the truth is, after I finished my residency and started working as a hospitalist and clinician educator, I realized that my learning was only beginning, but there was still so much more to know but there were no longer any formalized training structures or regular supervision from experts. I had to design my own training structures and learning practices, supervise myself, and hold myself accountable for looking things up when I didn't know them, and also for seeking feedback on the outcomes of my clinical decisions. A structured, self-directed, concise daily learning program doesn't just help me know more medicine in a Jeopardy game show sense. It also helps me recognize different conditions or complications, thereby tuning my index of suspicion. It helps me provide the most up-to-date and evidence-based care for my patients, certainly. But it also increases the personal satisfaction and joy that I derive from my clinical work by giving me a richness of understanding about what I'm seeing or doing. As an example, as a rheumatology fellow the other day in arthritis clinic, I saw a patient with Crohn's disease who had developed a peripheral, symmetric, non-erosive arthritis of the small joints. During the exam, I remembered reading a few weeks prior that patients with Crohn's can develop extra-intestinal skin manifestations as well, so I remembered to examine under the arms, and detected skin lesions that were consistent with hydradenitis operativa, which the patient expanded on only after I noticed them. This example, among others, clarifies an important truth to me that reading is a flashlight, and training ourselves to shine that light of learning into the dim section of our minds, into areas where we feel we don't know something or have forgotten something, can produce in a direct and immediate way more nuanced and meticulous patient care. So may we all learn often, learn happily, and learn as if we were to live forever. That concludes this episode of the Master Clinician Project. Thanks for tuning in for our interview with UCSF Master Clinician, Dr. Richard Jacobs. See you next time.